You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. And just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for a new day. Uh, a new morning, a new opportunity to see all that you have prepared and provided for us. We thank you for the provisions that you just faithfully give us each day, whether it be the little things like the food and the relationships we have to the country that we live in. We thank you that you have blessed us and you continue to provide for us. We thank you for the relationships that you give us with others relationships that help us to both reflect who you are and to see you in the, in the other people that we are close to and, and work with and live with and love. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities to be servants, to be your ambassadors and reflection in the world around us. But Heavenly Father, we have to acknowledge and and confess to you that often we forget about your provision and love. We forget that you promise to give us all that we need, that your love is unconditional, and instead we determine that we must do it on our own. We strike out to try and make things better without you. Lord, I confess that oftentimes only when I fail do I come back to you. Lord, I confess that oftentimes I ignore your gentle reminders to treat others as your sons and daughters, to do what we are reminded to do in Colossians, to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I confess that I forget to bear with one another, with others, to forgive others the grievances that they have had against me, that I forget to forgive as you have forgiven me. And overall, Lord, oftentimes I forget that I need to put on love above all things, love which binds us together in unity. Lord, I confess that we forget your promises. We forget the promises that you give us in Jeremiah 32, where you say, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing them good. Lord, I forget this incredible promise that you give each of us and steadfastly hold to each day. Lord, help us to make those promises real in our lives as we lean on you to recognize that you are here. Lord, I ask that you would be with those who are in despair this morning. Maybe it's from the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's just from the frustrations of family life or work. Lord, be with them. Let them know that you are walking with them. Make your presence so abundantly evident that they see you and feel you and live out of that comfort. 
Lord, give us patience to wait for your healing and your care. Lord, I pray for a friend, Steve, who seeks patience to hear when you will bring healing in his life. Lord, whether you will provide the kind of treatment that he desires, give him patience and confidence in your care and love for him. So, Lord, we ask you today to give us hope, hope to rely on the promises from Jeremiah, strength to rely on the faith that you give us, and and confidence that you give us everything we need so that we can boldly be your ambassadors to the world, to the world in which you have placed us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Last week, Josh began his sermon by sharing with you a letter we received from a legal organization. Uh, The letter was addressed specifically to me, but basically to the leadership of Red Sea, uh, that we were on a website that was rating Christians on their views of the LGBT Uh, uh, views, perspectives. And this website's agenda is to expose and then probably oppose uh, organizations, specifically churches, that have differing perspective on this issue than they do. And this letter was warning us that this was coming. Sometimes that the opposition to Christians that we're experiencing in our culture uh, can come from places that at one time were heavily influenced uh, by Christian beliefs. For example, This week, I was listening to a podcast, and in it, he was talking about how the largest Christian group on Harvard campus was put on probation because some of their beliefs and values that are rooted in biblical truth, the organization would say, are in conflict with the school's new policies. And therefore, since they're not in line, the school says, you're on a year probation, and therefore, um, if you do not comply to the policies within a year, you'll be expelled from Harvard. What makes this a little ironic is, can you put up the logo up there? What is a little ironic is, this is the logo of Harvard. And, it, and um, it was, Harvard was established in 1643 by John Harvard, a Puritan pastor. And this shield as their emblem has the word veritas in it, which is Latin for truth. And those three books, historically, now they might redefine them now, but historically those three books were, the two of them represented the Old and New Testaments, and the third one, the yet-written-to-be-written testimony of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Obviously no longer not much of an influential logo in their organization. You can take it down now. These, these incidences, and they're just, just a couple of the many that we could go through, but we're not going to, show the increasing aggressiveness of oppositions to churches and businesses and groups and, and even individuals who believe, live by, and specifically publicly express their Christian beliefs and values, especially if they're Orthodox Christian beliefs. And as we work through First Peter in the coming weeks, we will learn how and why we are to interact with such opposition. However, First Peter, in First Peter, Peter also is addressing a hardship and a conflict of a different kind, and we'll see this unfold in the coming weeks. It is the hardship and conflict that is caused by Christians, that is caused by Christians. It is the cultural and especially the relational conflict for that, that Christians cause just by being Christians. 
just by being Christians. Remember, when Peter wrote his letter, Christianity was relatively new, relatively new, very new, compared to other religions, especially compared to in the size. They were a very, very small minority of any population, any town that they were in. In those days, in most of the things, uh, uh, most common thing was that whole families and even whole communities were of one religion and had one religious, those same set of religious practice, whether they were polytheistic or emperor worship or Judaism or some other thing, they were usually was all the, all the family was in and all the community was in. That's the environment that Christianity entered into these communities. And when someone heard the gospel about Jesus Christ and responded in repentance and faith, turning to Christianity, they also were turning away from their families, and their communities. Let's not forget that, especially when those families and communities were extremely tight. They could no longer, these Christians could no longer worship at the temple that they're worshipped at. They could no longer make the, the idol, sacrifices to the idols. They could no longer swear their loyalty to Caesar uh, as God. And so, what did these, uh, what what did this do to the family and community relationships that they had? It caused great hardship and stress. It caused all sorts of relational problems when Christians, not intentionally, but had to break away from their family and their communities. These converts to Christianity brought shame on their families and their communities. Not intentionally, but by default of becoming a Christian and rejecting the old way. They rejected their families. And especially they brought shame on those closest to them, right? Their parents, their spouses, their extended family, their masters, whatever relationships they're in, when you reject them, you're rejecting them in a big way. This created a lot of tensions in their relationships. The pushback onto the Christians was personal, it was relentless, and often became violent, even among family members. Even, in our own, even especially from their own family members. Even today, around the world, there, this is true in a lot of non-Western cultures. Uh, it's not uncommon to hear about honor killings in which one family member will kill another family member because they have become a Christian and rejected the family by rejecting their religion. It's important for us to remember, not just today, but in the weeks ahead, that's the tension that Peter's addressing. He's addressing both of these, the cultural tension and the relational tensions of being Christians in a non-Christian world. Now, how should we deal with these tensions? How, how do we as a church, as families, as individuals, live in these tensions, both cultural and relational? How do we handle the cultural hostility and the tensions of relationships, whether they're from family or co-workers, or fellow students, or neighbors, or the governments, you fill in the blank with what you're feeling attention from. Now, do we, do we try to escape those tensions by avoiding them and isolating ourselves? Do we, do we live in constant fear of discouragement, being overwhelmed by these tensions? Do we compromise maybe minimizing our differences and, and maybe even relinquishing some of their lesser important beliefs so that we can blend in and hopefully we be ignored? Or do we take the offensive and attack? Do we get aggressive? 
with those who differ from us, maybe with a motto, convert or be crushed, or whatever you can come up with. Is that how we do this? Peter wrote his letter to inform both the first century and the 21st century Christians how to engage specifically these tensions. And I use the word engage on purpose. He wants us to engage them. He wants us, he wants us to interact with people intentionally and constructively in light of the truth of the gospel. And let me give you a hint. We do not hide, we do not fear, we do not compromise, and we do not attack. What do we do? Well, Peter is going to unpack in these letters the how and why we are to engage the hardships and tensions that we have, both culturally but also relationally. After his salutation, the, the beginning, the first line of his letter, where he says, hello, everybody, he writes to the, uh, the, the, he calls them the elect exiles to whom he is writing, and which is increasingly more meaningful uh, descriptor of us. We are increasingly going to be elect exiles in our culture. He says this in verse 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the first thing after he says, hello, everybody. That's the first thing out of Peter's mouth, or from his pen, I should say. Because of his great mercy and sovereign grace towards us, God has given us new life and a new family identity through Jesus Christ. And, and I want to particularly point out the phrase, to a living hope, an odd phrase, to a living hope, a hope that is not just an idea or a concept. It's a hope that is active, a hope that is growing stronger, a hope that is multiplied, just like anything else that is living does. It's hope that is experienced in life. In our passage today, Peter's going to develop the idea of a living hope and how this should, it should influence us as we face those tensions in our lives. And this is my big idea. I'm going to give you my big idea. We'll read the passage and then we'll unpack it. The big idea is this. Because Christians have been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, we can face hardships of life by doing three things. S setting our hope on the coming of Christ, expressing our hope in all of life, knowing our hope is secure in Christ. Will you stand with me as we read 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 21. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord for us. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways that inherited from your forefathers, not with perished things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, for sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that through the words today, 
through your words to us about having a living hope, we would root and ground and focus our hope on you as the source of all those things. Open our hearts, open our minds, help us to be, all of us to be receptive to your unique word to each of us on this day. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Because Christians have been born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ, we can face hardships in life by setting our hope on the coming of Christ. Well, where do we get that? It's very clear in the first verse, verse there, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that line begins with, therefore. It's for this reason. He's saying, I'm about to say something and applying something that I just finished talking about. Well, what was it he just finished talking about? He talked, which is the things that Josh went through last week. But that we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And we received numerous benefits that were imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then he says, therefore, in light of all those great things, preparing your minds for action. The phrase literally is girding up the loins of your mind. Not a phrase we use every day, okay? It means when they had long robes, and they had to either work or run or go into battle because they often wore long robes, they would trip up. Their feet would get tangled. So they would pull up the skirts, the length of it, and they would wrap it around or belt it around their waist so that their legs would be free. And that's the phrase. He's saying, do that. Prepare your minds. A phrase we would probably use in our culture, which would make sense to us, for most of us, and maybe it's generational, is roll up your sleeves. When you tell somebody to roll up their sleeves, it means we're going to get to work. And he's saying, roll up the sleeves, figuratively, of your mind. Get your mind in the game. And he's prepared and be thinking about these things ahead of time. Not just when you're suffering hardships or embroiled in tension. You're supposed to be doing this all the time. And he and uses the phrase, and being sober-minded or being self-controlled. It's a continuous action. It, it means clear thinking clearly. The opposite of sober is what? Drunkenness. Drunk. Right? This is, that wasn't a hard one. That was, that was a slow pitch, okay? And, and we, know, we, know, we know that. And it's basically being under some kind of disorienting influence of something. Now we naturally think of soberness and drunkenness to do with alcohol. And it obviously does. And he's using that metaphor, that word picture, because we, most people know, understand that influence of alcohol on people. But he's saying, being sober-minded, there are other disorienting influences that we need to be alert to, Right? especially in a time of tension or hardship. How about fear or pride or anger or envy or shame? Any of those can be influences so much that we're disoriented and we're not thinking clearly. They cloud our thinking and cause us to do things that are out of character with what we know we should be doing. Have, have any of you ever said something in anger and then regretted it later because you knew it caused harm? Well, maybe I'm the only one. Okay. It happens occasionally, right? Well, that, that is be, saying it in anger, knowing you shouldn't say it, but you said it anyways. You're being toxically influenced by some feeling, and you are not being sober-minded. And that's what he's saying. In the time of hardships, let's be clear-thinking. Let's be sober-minded. Let's avoid anything that would distract us from the way we should be thinking. So if we're thinking, supposed to think ahead, think clearly, and this is an ongoing thing we're doing. It's something we do. It's a regular part of who we are as Christians. What are we supposed to think about? Well, he tells us, set your hope fully, in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Set your hope fully. Focus your hope. Continually concentrate your hope on this thing, as he's saying. Set your hope fully. Hope is to look forward with confidence to that which is good or beneficial. It's a conviction we have grounded in truth. Hope is not a wish like the way we use the word in our day and age, like, I hope it doesn't rain this weekend, or I hope the stock market goes up, or I hope that turkey, a co-worker, friend, family, you fill in the blank, would just leave me alone. That's a wish. That's not a hope. Here, hope is an assurance that what we hope for will certainly come to pass. It's a confident expectation that is strong enough that because we hope on that, it'll impact the way we act and it'll impact our priorities as we think through things. And he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is, in, it is referring to the inevitable and imminent second coming of Christ that could happen any time. And this understanding and belief of the second coming of Christ is a basic doctrine, a basic understanding of the gospel message. Unfortunately, one I think we probably don't emphasize nearly enough. The gospel that God sent his only son to become one of us. That that son, Jesus, was sinless and obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And that he was raised on the third day and that he was ascended into heaven. And, and part of our gospel message, we're not done yet, and that this same Jesus will return someday, just as he has promised, completely to usher in his eternal kingdom and to bring about a new heavens and new earth. That is part of the declaration we have of the gospel. And Peter says you need to focus on that. It needs to come up often in your teaching and your conversations. When Jesus returns, everyone in all places, from all cultures, in all times, will know. It's not going to be a secret. And this is what Peter is telling us to fully put our hope in. And knowing that this is coming is supposed to have a huge influence on our thinking and our actions. And even, I should say, especially when we're facing hardships. Let me give you an example. I, there's not very many sports. That I can watch almost any sports. But the only sport that I like regularly watching throughout the season is football. I watch college and pro football. And and uh, I really like it when there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of drama, and a lot of unpredictability in a close game, especially if I really care about one of the teams. And that's what makes it so exciting, is that, that tension and unpredictability. But sometimes, because of my schedule, I have to record the games or ask somebody to record them for me so that I can watch them later. And what I do is not uncommon, is I watch them as if they're wa I'm watching them live, right? I, I don't... I, I don't want to know what happened, and I watch him live, and I pretend like it's really happening, even though it might have happened yesterday. I, I know that I'm watching it that way, and I like the tension. I like that kind of thing. Now, sometimes, inadvertently, I find out the final score before I watch the game. Now, let me ask you, when you find, you're anticipating watching the game, and then you find out the final score before you watch it, what does it do to that tension? What does it do to that unpredictability? It pretty well diminishes it, doesn't it? There might be some good plays. There might be some things you like. But the reality is, it's just not the same thing. The tension's not there. Oh, that was a pretty good play, but I know how this turns out, right? You you're following me? Okay. Well, in God's plan for the world and all of history, spoiler alert, he wins. And because we're his, we win too. And because we win, we know how this all turns out. 
And why is that important? It's important because just like watching a football game and finding out the score, we're watching life and we know how it ends. It should relieve the tension and unpredictability that we're going through. We know how it turns out. We're not going to be stressed out as much by the things happening because we know the final score. Because Christians are born again to this living hope, Paul, uh, Peter wants us to know, to keep the big picture in mind. Set your hope on that. Setting our hope on the coming of Christ. But then Peter gives us another use for this living hope that he's expressing. This is the second point. Expressing our hope in all of life. Expressing our hope in all of life. He says in verses 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In verses 14 and 15, he's making a very strong contrast. Do not do this, but do this different thing instead. So in 14, he says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He tells us we are obedient children. He reminds us of our identity. We're supposed to be like Dad. We're supposed to be, have our, uh, be living and modeling ourselves after our Dad. We're obedient children. Don't be conformed. Do not be pressed. Do not be compliant. Do not be molded. Don't let those things push you around the passions of your former ignorance. And we know that he uses the children language there, that children sometimes, or maybe I should say always, are governed by their passions, are they not? They're governed. They have, they have uncontrolled impulses, and they act that way. And he's saying, don't do that by your former ignorance. By your, when you were ignorant of God and the gospel and God's ways, even if society says it's okay, it's not okay. <laughs> Even if that family does it, Junior, it's not okay in this household, is what he's saying. That's my paraphrase. So wh what is his point? We, we are to recognize our former ways before we knew the gospel, and we're supposed to resist them. We're supposed to be alert to them. Some of those passions and realities still exist within us, don't they, as Christians? Because of our sinful nature, because of our habits, because of the culture around us. But now that we're born again and spirit-led, we should, should and can resist them. And then Peter gives us the second part of the contrast. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your contact, conduct. So instead of yielding to our passions, we're supposed to be, put, be like our Heavenly Father, as children who father. Or as Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. We're supposed to be like our dads. Christians often define holiness as separation from sin and evil. And that's true, but it's not complete. And if we just focus on that, it's going to be misleading for us. Holiness, and we're going to look at this, holiness is not just what we're separated from, but it's also what we're separated to. He says in here, but as he who called you is holy, but as he who called you, he's talking about God. The call for us to be holy begins with God. So, what is God's holiness? Sinclair Ferguson wrote in a book called Devoted to God. He defines this, and, and I know quotes are easy time to start drifting about what you're doing this, evening, this afternoon, but work with me here as, as I read this quote to think through it. It's not very long, but follow along with me. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity. This is Sinclair writing. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these is equally holy, but what is this holiness among three persons of the Trinity look like? He goes on. We mean, we're talking about holiness among the Godhead, God. 
we mean the perfectly pure devotion of each of these three persons to the other two. We mean the attribute in Trinity in the Trinity that corresponds to the ancient words that describe marriage, forsaking all and cleaving only unto thee. Absolute, permanent, exclusive, pure, irreversible, fully expressed devotion. That's what it means for the three of the Trinity to be holy. They are completely devoted to each other and their relationship. So Peter says, as you, you also be holy in your contact. You guys behave the same way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are being holy. Well, what does that look like? Sinclair helps us, and this is another short quote. If this is what holiness means in God, then in us it must also be corresponding, deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to him. A belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. Simply put, it means being entirely his so that all we do and possess are his. We come to think all of our thoughts and build our lives around this foundation, our devotion to him. Holiness is another word for devotion to God. And that's what, and we could say it another way that I rephrased it as, Holiness, devotion, is expressing our hope in Christ in all of life. Expressing our hope in life, hope in Christ in all of life. He says here, you should also do this in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. Not just the religious activities of going to church on Sunday, or going to home community, or reading your Bibles, or praying. All your conduct. Conduct is the word for pattern of life, the routines that demonstrate and shape us. There is nothing that we can do that should be not viewed from the lens of our devotion to God, expressing our hope in Christ, our holiness. Work, school, play, cooking, cleaning, watching Netflix, driving, doing homework, sleeping, sex, hygiene, all are to be done in devotion to God. Later in this letter, Peter is going to give some examples of how this works with regard to civil authorities and and, uh, work and marriages. But right now, Peter knows that these living aspects of our lives as fully devoted to Christ can actually cause hardship. He knows that when we live, and this is what Peter is addressing, when we live this and we do our devoted in all aspects of our life to Christ, it will cause relational hardships in our life. Let me give you an example. This might come as a shock to some of you, but I was not very cool in high school. Uh, Not nearly as cool as I am now. So I decided back then on a tactic called cool by association. Anybody familiar with it? Did I steal it from some of you? Okay, okay. Um, if I hung out regularly with the cool guys, I would by default be considered cool, okay? I was okay with collateral coolness. And um, when, when I was in high school, I played football and wrestled, and, and in my junior year, the captain of the wrestling team was a guy named Bob. 
And Bob was definitely in the cool groups, okay? Bob was in the cool groups. So my plan was, since I'm the wrestling team with him, I had a reason to be around him, that I would hang out as much as possible with Bob, and though I would be coming cooler and cooler over time. That is, until the lie. The lie. One day, our coach in wrestling decided that it would be a good idea for the team to end our practice by doing a five-mile run around the neighborhood. So we left in little groups out of, the, uh, out of the gym, and I left with Bob, and just Bob and I. And this was awesome, because I didn't have to share Bob's coolness with anybody. It was just the two of us, okay? That, that ranked for more coolness, okay? And when we left, we were following some other guys, but we were ahead of most of the, most of the other wrestlers. And about a mile into the run, Bob decided to be a good idea that we cut through the neighborhood and wait for the first runners to go by, and then we jump out, and end the run, and so our five-mile run would be a two-mile run. And that's what we did. We literally hid behind bushes for the guys to go by, and then we jumped out and huffed and puffed and sweated our way back to the gym. Well, when we got back to the gym, some of the other guys accused Bob and I of cheating. I don't know where it came from, but they accused us of cheating on the run. And they told the coach, So the coach came up to Bob face-to-face and said, Bob, did you cheat on that run? And Bob confidently said, no, we did not cheat. We ran the whole run. And then the coach looked at me and said, Royce, did you guys cheat on that run? And I, trying to mirror Bob's confidence, said, no, we did not cheat. We ran the whole run. And with that, the coach was happy. Practice dismissed. Well, as soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. As soon as it came out of my mouth. I was a Christian at the time. And the pursuit of coolness had trumped honesty. And as I showered and I went home and in through the afternoon and into the evening, the sense of guilt grew and grew and grew and was crushing me because I knew what that I had done is wrong. And it was driving me crazy. So much so that I decided that I could not wait till tomorrow to talk to the coach at practice. I called him that night and confessed what I did. I told him that I did indeed cheat on the run and that I had lied to him, and I was sorry for both. He accepted my apology and hung up. Now, by my confessing my cheating and my lying to the coach, what did I do by implication? I threw Bob under the proverbial bus, right? And you better believe when we came to practice the next day, that coach ran that bus over Bob a couple times, okay? He was very upset. Bob got upset. Bob got increasingly upset at me, which I found interesting, not at the guys who originally turned us in, but for me for being honest. And Bob was not happy. In fact, he was angry. He stayed angry. And my coolness by association with Bob was over. Done. In fact, not only was I a persona non grata to the cool group of guys that he was a part of who he was, but I became, in essence, an exile to them for the rest of the year. Now, why am I telling you this? Two reasons. Two reasons. First, Peter instructs us, as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. This includes everything, even something as mundane as practicing sports. It matters. I was a Christian. I knew that cheating and lying was wrong, but I let myself, as in Peter's words, be conformed to the passions of my former ignorance, and I was not expressing my hope in Christ. 
Jesus said, Whoever is faithful with a little will be faithful with a lot, but whoever is dishonest with a little will be dishonest with a lot. The second reason I'm telling you this is sometimes doing the right thing, even living according to the truth of the gospel, may cause hardship with other people in our lives. The impact that we have when we, well, what we say and do may, from their perspective, cause them harm. Bob felt harmed. It might aggravate them, it might convict them, and at some times they may even retaliate. How do we respond when this happens? Peter is going to unpack this in detail again throughout his letter, but he's also addressing it in the next couple verses. Because Christians are born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, we can face hardships of life by setting our hope on the coming of Christ, by expressing our hope in, and of hope in Christ in all our life, and thirdly, knowing our hope is secure in Christ. Knowing our hope is secure in Christ. When we think about the cultural hardships and the, that we can expect to increase in the coming years, when we think about the relational tensions with family members and coworkers and classmates and neighbors, whoever, caused by our commitment to live for Christ, then we need to have confidence to do the right things even when it costs us to do so. He says that. Peter gives us some reasons why we have this confidence. Verse 17, he says, If you call on as the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, God our Father is also God our judge. He is a Father that he will judge impartially without showing favoritism. When we find ourselves in cultural and relational hardships, uh, we, we do not have God's permission to defend ourselves and retaliate or behave any way we want to. One of the things, if you're a parent or a grandparent and you catch kids squabbling and fighting, or you're in kids' community, fighting, and you break it up, and one of the first responses was going to be, he did it first. He did it first. As if that makes their misbehavior okay. Well, it's the same in God's family. We don't get to be, uh, be the responders and say, well, they did it first, so it's okay for us to misbehave. God says, no, it's not okay. He says in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout a time of exile. Conduct yourselves. Again, he's saying it. Your whole pattern of life with fear. With fear. Not fear of hardship. Not fear of tension. Not fear of, of hostility. But fear of God. Fear of God, the Father who will judge impartially. Fear of God. It is, it's, it's a concept we don't spend, again, one of those ones a lot of time on, yet it's so practical. Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight or understanding. When we're facing tension, we're facing difficult situations, what we should do, we should, he says here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. We want wisdom on how to handle the situation, Begin with fear of God. The New Testament has a lot to say about the near God, fear of God. One of the things that I, one of the verses I find fascinating is in Acts chapter nine. The church has just gotten over a period of persecution. There's a slight pause before the next persecution breaks out, and it's just after Paul's conversion, Saul's pervert conversion, who later became Paul. And he says this. So this is what it says. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria and had peace and was being built up. Well, that sounds good. How do they do that? And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Isn't that amazing? 
in the, they walked, they lived, they acted in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that caused them, according to Luke, to grow in numbers and maturity. It's not a combination I think we often put together, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But that's the way he wants us to walk. And Peter said, throughout your time as exiles, during your times of hardship. So what's the point here? When we are in the midst of tensions and even hostility towards us, we don't get to behave any way we want to. We, we still have to do our best to express our hope in Christ by doing the right thing. This, this, may, this may not seem fair for now. For now. It will be fair on the day of judgment when Christ returns. The, the people causing us hardship and we ourselves will be accountable for the Lord. And everyone will be judged impartially. In God's timing, justice will be served. This should give us great confidence as we go through our hardships. But Peter continues, even gives us more reason to have confidence. Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed in your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like the lamb without blemish and spot. Again, he wants us to think rightly, knowing or because you know, and it's a continuing, ongoing action. It's in front of our minds, just like preparing our minds for action or being sober-minded. Knowing that we were ransomed from our feudal ways. You were ransomed. A ransom is when you, we know in pirate movies and slave things, when somebody's ransomed, a, a price is paid to get out of, uh, out of slavery or out of uh, capture, and they're bought back and given freedom. Well, this same imagery, this word is used for us, but it's not just that God is, is ransoming us, um, God is the one doing the ransoming, and we're the ones being set free. And he says in here that we were ransomed from or out of our futile, useless ways of life. In this verse, Peter's emphasis is not that we're redeemed from guilt of sin, but that we're set free from our former way of life. Peter then gives us another one of his contrasts. Another one of his contrasts. Not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus. It was, this is not a financial transaction that God made. This is one as of greater, greater value. Jesus paid a high cost to redeem us with his precious blood. Precious blood. Precious blood. This blood is precious because it was from a sinless man. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This blood was precious because it was from God the Son's blood. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? This blood is the precious blood because in him we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. This blood is precious because by means of his own blood, Jesus secured for us an eternal redemption. This blood is precious for us because, as Peter already said in verse 4 of this chapter, though we, through it we have obtained an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. This blood is precious because it is valuable enough to ransom all people in all cultures at all times who respond to the gospel. And he says in the book of Revelation, he says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on earth forever. Do you know the value of Christ's blood? Do you think often about the value of Christ's blood shed for you? Have you ever responded in repentance and faith to the message that Christ died for your sins? Maybe you haven't, or maybe you're unsure. I would strongly encourage you to talk to someone, one of us elders, a home community leader, just someone to talk about how to respond to that gospel message. And even if you're a long-time Christian, do you remember that that blood that was shed for you was a precious, eternally precious blood? Why is this important for us to know? that we were ransomed from our former ways by the precious bread of Christ. Two reasons. One is motivation. It gives us motivation. For, for us to continue to live and respond using the futile, futile ways, that Peter calls them, that we, we have been freed from is to disrespect, is to dishonor, and maybe even deny the value of Christ's death. That should be a motivation. But it also provides security. We know our hope is secure in Christ. Whenever we are in the midst of hardship and relational tensions, um, this eternal value will never be taken away from us. We can't earn it. We can't lose it. And therefore, we are secure in it. The benefits of God's grace of Jesus Christ can never be taken from us. Peter continues in this, and he just wraps it up here. He says, now, verses 20 and 21, he was foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What's his point here? He's wrapping, he's summarizing what he's trying to say. Here it is. Everything is happening according to God's plan. Everything is happening according to God's plan. And if God's not panicking, neither should we. Neither should we. And that God has planned and he has paid for our redemption and now we can put our hope and trust in what God has done, in God himself. See that in the end of verse 21. So that your faith and your hope might be in God. Not our circumstances, not our feelings, but in God alone. So let me just wrap up by just summarizing what it is. We are going to face cultural and um, relational tension in the coming years. Even now we do. How should we respond as individuals, as a church, as families? We can, have, we can know that in our living hope we can respond by setting our hope on the coming of Christ. We are to think often about Christ's return, knowing that justice will be served and he will fully establish his kingdom on earth. Knowing that our hope is secure in Christ, we should also know, we should look back and know that because of Christ's death, we are secure by the precious blood of Christ. But with both of those in mind, looking forward to the return of Christ, looking back to the blood of Christ, we can look at our life situation here, now, every single day, expressing our hope in all of Christ, in Christ and all of life. Living hope is lived. I want to invite you, to, if, you've, uh, if you have responded to the gospel message that Christ has died for your sins in faith and repentance, you are a Christian, you are a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to celebrate the precious blood of Christ, the living hope that we have in him. And come up and take communion, come up, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or, or the juice as you feel, pretty, uh, feel necessarily. But I want you to do so with the word hope in your mind. 
setting your hope, being expressing your hope, knowing your hope is secure in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your continued working in us this living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. It continues to live. It continues to grow. It continues to mature. I pray that it will continue to do so. I pray that we can keep our eyes on your return, that we can be secure in the precious blood of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you enable us because of both those things to express our hope of Christ to our devotion, our holiness in every aspect of our life. We thank you in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.